This is Lou Elizondo, and you are listening to That UFO Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and following on from his incredibly successful first book, a New York Times bestseller, Extraterrestrial, my guest is now releasing his eagerly awaited follow-up, Interstellar, The Search for Extraterrestrial Life and Our Future in the Stars, where he examines the next steps, revealing how humanity must reset its cultural understanding and expectation of what it means to have contact with interstellar extraterrestrial civilizations. I'd like to welcome back to the podcast, Professor Avi Loeb. It's my pleasure, Andy. Good to be with you. It's good to have you on, Avi. Lots to talk about and not a lot of time to do it. So let's get straight into the conversation. Um, your book, I wonder how quickly after you wrote Extraterrestrial did the idea for Interstellar come about? Oh, um, it was about a year later because... Um, as a result of extraterrestrial, I decided to have an action plan to promote the cause that I'm interested in, which is a scientific exploration of the question of whether we have any technological gadget near Earth that came from another civilization. And of course, there were hints for that. And uh, for example, in the context of Oumuamua, the first uh, object reported from outside the solar system that was roughly the size of a football field. Uh, was flat in its shape and was pushed away from the sun by some mysterious force without showing evaporation, no cometary tail. So it didn't look like a comet, didn't look like an asteroid. I was intrigued by that. And then uh, a year and a half later, I was also uh, made aware of a catalog that NASA has uh, of meteors. And we found, uh, together with my student, Amir Siraj, uh, an interstellar meteor there. In other words, uh, an object that collided with Earth roughly half a meter in size. Uh, and obviously very different from Oumuamua, but uh, it was uh, in its own way uh, unique and unusual, an outlier, because it was uh, moving very fast relative uh, to the solar system. Uh, when it was outside the solar system, it was moving faster than 95% of all the stars in the vicinity of the sun. Uh, and uh, moreover, it had material strength that was tougher than all the space rocks that NASA cataloged over the past decade, 272 of them. And that is uh, 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 that raised the possibility that maybe it's a Voyager-like uh, meteor. Uh, imagine Voyager in a billion years colliding with another planet and appearing as a meteor in the sky and uh, then uh, showing material strength, uh, unusual relative to rocks and also moving fast because of its propulsion. So that was the conjecture. And of course, there was an action uh, item that came with it to, to check uh, materials that were left from that explosion of the meteor. And uh, uh, at the same uh, time, I also started realizing, you know, the, the U.S. government is talking about unidentified uh, aerial phenomena that later became anomalous uh, phenomena. Uh, UAP. And uh, so altogether, you know, when uh, uh, all of these items uh, were on my table, the uh, possibility of another object like Oumuamua that may look very different from rocks, uh, a meteor that we can find the nature of, and, and the director of national intelligence talking about objects that the government cannot identify, uh, I decided to go ahead and establish the Galileo project. Uh, and that was in uh, uh, June uh, 2021, exactly two years ago. 
And uh, uh, at the same time, I also started focusing on interstellar objects, objects that came from outside the solar system. So the word interstellar became uh, quite central to what uh, I'm doing. And uh, in the book, I also talk about the implications. If we demonstrate that indeed there is a technological gadget that arrived to our doorstep from another civilization, how would it affect the future of humanity? And just before we get into the book, I wonder, in the time between extraterrestrial and interstellar, have have you changed your approach or mindset to the UFO, UAP phenomenon, given what's happened and from a government point of view, your setting up of the Galileo project, your heavy involvement? Has, has th- have things changed for you? Yeah, quite a bit, because, uh, you see, I uh, started as a, as a theoretical physicist, meaning that uh, I worked in the realm of ideas. Okay, so that was what I did uh, for decades as a scientist. Uh, but then I realized on this subject, you know, nobody is doing the right thing in terms of collecting evidence, collecting data the way scientists do with instruments. And it occurred to me that someone needs to do it. And since nobody else was doing it, uh, I decided to do it. Uh, It was a path not taken uh, and something that is different from what I practiced before. But then basically I organized an expedition to the Pacific Ocean to look after the remnants of this uh, uh, interstellar meteor. And uh, in the Galileo project, we built, uh, assembled an observatory that is operating at Harvard University that we can talk more about. And moreover, you know, I've, uh, together with my postdocs, we are developing the software to analyze the next Oumuamua when we see it with uh, the Rubin Observatory in Chile starting next year. So I became uh, uh, more practical in the sense of if nobody else is doing it, it needs to be done and let's pursue it. And Fortunately, there were donors who came to my help and funded the research, and uh, that's what allowed me to fulfill, for example, the mission of the expedition. We can talk more about it. Absolutely. So you mentioned gathering data and equipment, and like you say, your introduction to many of us in the UFO topic was when Amuamua was discovered in 2017, and your declaration that this could be something more than just another passing rock. And I think that really caught the imagination of a lot of folks out there. You ended up on the Joe Rogan podcast talking about this. So your statement really caught on. By the, by the way, for- uh, just as we speak, there was a, a profile in the New York Times magazine. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, very extensive. Um, and uh, what is in- interesting to watch for is not just uh, what I'm trying to do practically, you know, I'm just trying to collect the evidence, which is the scientific method, but how people who call themselves scientists uh, push back and try to stop me from doing the scientific work that it needs to be done on this subject. Yeah, and, and I've got something on that in I'll leave that till later because I think it works well with the the last question I've got on the book. Um, And you've had a lot of pushback as well. But I wonder, when you're hunting for objects like Oumuamua and and anything else that's so far away, the vast distances these objects are are being caught at at first, in the six years since we, we found Oumuamua, how far have our own abilities to track, trace and collect data on these objects advanced, if at all? Right. So uh, it, it's all about instruments. So the 
telescope that uh, discovered the Muamua was the uh, PanStars in Hawaii. It was the first survey telescope that allows us to see objects the size of a football field within the orbit of the Earth around the Sun. And uh, the next uh, uh, survey telescope that is far more uh, sensitive is called the Rubin Observatory in Chile. It has a camera of 3.2 billion pixels, so a thousand times more resolution or pixels than uh, a cell phone camera. And it uh, surveys the southern sky every four days. And so it's uh, the ideal instrument to find uh, Oumuamua-like objects passing near Earth. Uh, And so we hope that it will find uh, at least a few of those every year. And that would, of course, allow us to get much more information because now we are aware there was a, 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 you know, a, a, an alarm that uh, was rang and, and when Oumuamua. So now we are alert to objects like it. And um, we can observe them also with the Webb telescope, uh, which is a million miles away from Earth. So if you have two telescopes, one on Earth and one uh, the Webb telescope, then they look at the object any object passing in the vicinity of Earth from different directions. And that's like a pair of eyes allowing you to gauge the distance very precisely. And it would allow us to see any non-gravitational propulsion, acceleration that uh, such an object has. And also the Webb telescope can measure the uh, emission from the heat uh, coming off the object. And the temperature of the object is dictated by its distance from the sun. Uh, so we can calculate it and then um, from the measured the uh, amount of radiation coming off the object, we can figure out its size because given the temperature, the amount of uh, energy received by the Webb telescope per unit time, per unit area will d- just uh, relate to the size of the object. And so with Oumuamua, we didn't know the exact size because there was no telescope like the Webb telescope that works in the infrared and can see things from space uh, uh, with the the appropriate sensitivity. There was an infrared telescope, but it wasn't sensitive enough. It's called the Spitzer Space Telescope, and it was used to set a limit on the amount of dust around Oumuamua, but not to really measure the heat coming off Oumuamua. So now with the Webb telescope, we can do that. And um, altogether, we'll have much more information because we are aware of it. Uh, And um, um, that uh, will bring us to a completely new uh, level of, uh, uh, you know, sophistication in figuring out the nature of the object. Um, Of course, the ideal thing would be to land on the object and then you can easily tell whether it's um, um, a rock or, or a technologically manufactured object. The advantage, I mean, if we wanted to rendezvous with such an object, that's something we contemplated in the Galileo project, that would cost more than a billion dollars. And however, if there is a meteor that uh, collides with Earth, we can go to the site of the meteor where it exploded, as we did with uh, the Pacific Ocean Expedition. And that costs a thousand times less. So I would argue that in order to find the nature of interstellar objects, it's much more economic to go after meteors. Well, let's talk about that then. The the object you're talking about is a meteor that crashed off the coast of Papua New Guinea in 2014, I believe. Uh, work is still ongoing with this, I believe. Is that right, Avi? Yeah, so the US government uh, satellites detected it 
And as I mentioned, it was moving very fast. And also, uh, since it uh, only lost its uh, integrity very low in the atmosphere, where the stress was enormous, uh, one can tell could tell that it's uh, it has a very uh, high material strength, very tough, tougher than uh, uh, iron meteorites. So uh, we, uh, I organized an expedition uh, that visited the site of the meteor between uh, uh, the 14th and 28th of June, uh, 2023. And um, we were looking for any droplets that melted off the surface of the object when it was exposed to the enormous heat from the fireball that it created as a result of its friction with air. And uh, these are typically millimeter or less in size, tiny droplets, the size of a grain of sand. Um, and uh, we, the, the region of uh, the explosion was localized by the Department of Defense to within 11 kilometers on a side. So uh, it, it's a very large region and uh, the depth of the ocean is two kilometers. So just think about it, trying to find millimeter sized particles uh, across 10 kilometers uh, at an ocean depth uh, of uh, two kilometers. And it sounds like a hopeless uh, mission, but what we did is build a sled that had magnets on both sides and roughly a meter in width and connected it with a cable to a ship uh, that was fittingly called the Silver Star. And we dragged the sled on the ocean floor, just skimming the surface. Uh, and um, with the magnets, we collected all magnetic particles that they were trapped uh, by the magnets. And uh, then when we brought it to the deck of the ship, we could scrape off those magnets. And most of the material that we recovered was uh, volcanic ash, black powder. But among those tiny particles of volcanic ash that we filtered out with a mesh, uh, we uh, found using a microscope um, met marbles, metallic marbles, uh, size of a millimeter, exactly the type that we wanted to find. Uh, and we extracted them with tweezers, uh, 50 of them on the ship. And then when I came back to Harvard, then a, an undergraduate student who was my summer intern, uh, Sophie Bergstrom, she found 650 more. So altogether, we have more than 700 spherules. These are the molten droplets from the surface of the object. And we are now analyzing them uh, using a mass spectrometer, using electron uh, microscope, uh, trying to learn more about their composition. And uh, amazingly, we found a concentration of those spherules uh, close to the meteor path. Uh, relative to control regions far away. So that shows that we are uh, located in, in the right place uh, because why would there be a conspiracy that uh, there would be more spherules along the meteor path? That uh, makes no sense. Otherwise, uh, it, they, some of them must belong to the meteor. Of course, there, there is a background everywhere, but um, we were able to analyze the composition and demonstrate that indeed uh, the material came from outside the solar system. So it's the first time that humans put their hands on materials uh, that belong to a large object uh, that came from outside the solar system. What can you hope to learn from this material going forward? Uh, so in principle, now we have uh, the recipe in terms of what it was made of, 
of course, some elements were lost uh, during the uh, passage through the air because of evaporation. The temperature was thousands of degrees, so some elements were lost. We know which elements because we see that they are lacking. It's, these are called volatile elements that can be lost. Um, so uh, other than that, we have the abundance uh, of various elements. Um, and so in principle, you can think of it as a recipe for a cake. If you have all the ingredients, you can put them together, maybe in the laboratory and see what you get. And uh, that's what one can do in principle to learn about whether there are natural circumstances under which such an object could be made. Uh, if so, it would be very different than um, solar system rocks. Uh, but the more interesting question is whether it could be technological in origin. And for that, um, you know, we are planning to go again and look for big pieces of the object now that we know where to go because we found those spherules um, in some places. And um, so if we find a big piece, uh, we can tell the difference between a rock and a technological gadget because a gadget would have some buttons on it, would have some signatures of technology. Um, so that's our hope for the future. And assuming we'd be at that point suspecting we've picked up some sort of probe from another civilization that is out there that is sending out probes much like we are. And at this point, we, we don't know what those probes could look like, do we? Like you say, you would hope to find some form of button, but we can't judge what another civilization's technology could look like, could we? That's right. Uh, so we should be completely open-minded. But uh, obviously, we haven't found such a, a clue as of yet. The first uh, <clears throat> task that we had was to show that the materials are not from the solar system. And that's been successful? Uh, yeah. Uh, and the details will come out um, uh, by the end of August uh, 2023 in a scientific paper that will be shared with everyone. Excellent. And folks listening to this, it'll be round about the end of August. We're recording this just a few days before. So that's why if you're listening to this and the paper's out, we can't really go into any more details at the moment. But yeah, definitely look out for that. That'll be all over social media, I am sure. Um, on the note of scientific study, Avi, there are still frustrations from many who follow the UFO topic that a lot of the mainstream, whether it is the media, science, academia, still refuse to get involved in the topic or treat it with the seriousness that you have and your colleagues and the respect it deserves. With this book, you again stress we must treat this search as the scientific endeavour that it is and reject the stigma that has surrounded it for too long. Can you see that progress is being made in those efforts to reduce stigma and increase the scientific efforts? Uh, yeah, well, the fact that the government talks about it, there was a hearing at the, the US House of Representatives that shows that serious politicians of, on both sides uh, of the aisle are discussing it. And uh, obviously, they will look farther into that uh, because there was the claim by David Grush, uh, one of the eyewitnesses, that uh, the U.S. government has possession of materials and um, some programs for retrieval and reverse engineering of uh, alien spacecraft. And uh, obviously, I mean, we don't have the evidence uh, in front of us. He didn't see it, but he spoke with 40 uh, people who might be involved in those programs. So uh, the Congress people will look farther and hopefully in the coming year we'll learn more about it. 
the fact that the government takes it seriously that the word extraterrestrial is part of the lexicon of uh, in Congress, you know, that's a, a significant uh, change. Uh, and obviously the public cares a lot about it. Um, so my point is rather simple. If the public and government care about it, it's the civil duty of scientists to figure out whether there is anything behind the, those reports that about UAP or um, any interstellar object being uh, unusual, peculiar, you know, an outlier, could be a relic of a technological gadget. Uh, it's really our duty and the way to figure it out is not by saying repeatedly like a mantra. People keep repeating what Carl Sagan said in the 70s, uh, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. But keep in mind that those people who say that are never seeking any evidence. They say that it needs extraordinary evidence, but at the same time, they're resisting uh, any effort to collect the evidence. Even if I go out for the evidence, it bothers them. So I ask you, why would it bother them if they say that we need extraordinary evidence when I'm just seeking that evidence? It shows that it's not a fair play, that in fact, they don't want to know and they would rather not seek the evidence and continue to say what Carl Sagan says, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence since they don't collect the evidence. Therefore, they can say, let's forget about it. So it's a circular argument, very unfortunate, because it's not sincere. When we discuss new forms of matter, like dark matter that we don't know the nature of, we can, you know, the physics community spends billions of dollars looking for particles that were not found. And that happened for decades. Nobody said it's an extraordinary claim. And if a subject is of more importance to the public than the nature of dark matter, how can they not invest any funding in the search and claim that we don't have any evidence? That makes no sense. Like, it's like someone saying, you know, we haven't seen, suppose you go uh, before uh, 2015 when the first gravitational wave was detected, you could say, well, you know, gravitational waves, we have no evidence for them. Until there is evidence, uh, we will not discuss them. Now, if you were to take that attitude, obviously you would never detect gravitational waves because it's so challenging. The, it requires a certain threshold of sophistication in your instru instruments to detect them. And um, so why would it fall to your lap? And, you know, when Enrico Fermi said, where is everybody? Why would everybody come and sit in Los Alamos in 1951 next to Enrico Fermi just because he wants to know? No, the space is huge. Time is is very long in the cosmic uh, context. Uh, it's billions of years. And so the chance of Enrico Fermi just using his eyes and seeing someone and so that he gets an answer to where is everybody is extremely small. That's a very presumptuous approach. Uh, what you really need to do is to seek the evidence. And uh, we only over the past decade, we, that was the first decade where we could detect interstellar objects. That's what brought me to the subject. And so uh, as, astronomer, as an astronomer, you know, I want to f get more data. Uh, and uh, I would expect other people to say, yeah, that's an interesting question. The public cares about it. Go ahead. No, but what they say is don't go ahead. And they ridicule it. And that's the stigma that you were referring to. And I think it should have no place 
because um, you know if you use instruments to figure out the nature of objects that look uh, like outliers and we end up finding that there are balloons drones or if this interstellar meteor happens to be a rock so be it you know i'm not saying uh that you know the outcome must be one way but without seeking the evidence we'll never know so we have to search and when i went to the pacific ocean there were many people who said why are you wasting your time wasting your money uh and i said i don't i'm not asking you to do anything you can just sit back and relax i'm doing the heavy lifting and they said you will not find anything and then i found something and then they said oh you didn't find anything because we think it was just uh a stone you know because when we try to fit the data from the us government we couldn't do it with a model for uh, the type of rocks that we worked on in the past therefore the government data must be wrong and the object was moving three times slower than the government recorded and you know three times slower than the government recorded that's like saying the us space command doesn't know what they are doing and the us space command is responsible for alerting the us president about any national security threats coming from space and if they were wrong by a factor of 3 then they would alert mexico for a missile heading towards washington dc i mean it's just strange for a scientist to say that i said let's believe the us government because they wrote a special letter to nasa saying we check the data and we uh, confirm that it is at the 99.99% it does tell this object the meteor so i believed it i went there and i found it and i found the materials that are mostly iron so claiming that it was a stone i just you know find that uh, very arrogant because those people never seek any data and i go and seek it and find it they are not waiting for me to tell them what i'm finding they already tell me what i'm supposed to not find and just you know for this to be the mainstream reaction to the collection of evidence is to me mind boggling because it violates the way science should be done i think i along with many people listening to this like i'm just a member of the public i find that very frustrating that scientists and academics come across as very unscientific or very unacademic in how they approach the ufo topic and i wonder someone like yourself a very credible person serious role in a very serious well known institute have you ever been tempted to walk away from your work in this field and just go back to maybe a more conventional role no because uh, i'm just following you know the blueprint of what a scientist should be and then they attack me personally i never say anything personal about them and they attack me you just read the new york times magazine it's all about the negative comments personal comments rather than uh them saying okay let him collect data like am i offending anyone by collecting data let him collect data and then we see if there is any evidence for anything that he's uh, seeking Okay and when i submit the paper uh with the details of the results from the expedition they can say whatever they want about their interpretation of that data that would be a legitimate response but instead they're saying don't go there because you will not find anything when i bring something they say you didn't bring anything and then you know just the mere fact that i wrote essays diary reports from the expedition so the public can see how science is done that uh was of uh, that offended some scientists they say why would he talk about the scientific project before 
publishing his paper? And my answer is simple, so that the public can see how science is done. I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm still publishing the paper, but I wanted it. And the public appreciated that there were millions of people who read it, translated to Spanish. A lot of people thanked me for the, the fact that I documented the way the project went. And uh, to me, it's a win-win situation where the public sees how things are done and then eventually the final paper. Why would that be a negative? And I think part of it is driven by jealousy that they see the public's attention. Uh, but also part of it is that the scientists are violating the code of their profession. They basically have an opinion and they don't want data that would contradict their opinion. So they would say the US Space Command measured the speed of this object wrong by a factor of three. They would say bad things about me personally and they would never go and check the evidence. I did it. I will show them the evidence and then let's see what they say. Uh, and on that, I wanted to just mention that I'm following the metaphor of the eagle. You know, the eagle very often has a crow pecking on its neck, uh, riding on the back of the eagle. Uh, but the eagle, instead of fighting off the crow, just rises to greater heights where the oxygen level is lower and the crow just drops off because of the lack of oxygen. And to me, the greatest height is actually right doing the science properly, collecting the evidence and then analyzing it with the best instruments in the world. And then my hope is that all these crows will stop pecking on my neck. I like that analogy. I like that. That's uh, that's good. Um, I wonder has has the progress or direction of that UFO conversation from the last couple of years, your work with the Galileo project, has has the Galileo project been affected positively or negatively by by what's gone on with the government's involvement with the new information coming out? Have you seen more people get on board or perhaps some people leave? What's been the, the change? Uh, no, it's actually all positive. Um, also, the new office in, in uh, the Pentagon uh, called Aero, All Domain Anom Anomaly Resolution. You know, I spoke with uh, a number of members from that office who came to my ho home and uh, visited our site of the Galileo Project. And they are very um, supportive of what we are doing scientifically. And the, the way I see it is that the government, of course, is concerned mostly with national security. That's their goal, to figure out what most of the objects, you know, if there are drones uh, that have uh, made in China on them, they would like to know that, of course, and the same with balloons. And uh, uh, my uh, approach is uh, completely opposite to that. Uh, I'm mostly interested in the one in a thousand objects that might be not from this earth. And... Uh, Anything that came from China is boring as far as I'm concerned. So the, the work of a scientist is complementary to that of government. We're interested in different things. And I'm happy for them, you know, to help them figure out all the things they care about. Um, but at the same time, I want to see if there is anything that came from outside of this earth. And um, so I don't see any conflict with, with government. In fact, you know, the letter from the U.S. Space Command helped us make the case for the expedition. And uh, I even got supportive uh, emails during my expedition. So um, my only issue is with scientists within academia pushing back and not being honest and fair, given that a lot of the projects that are currently being funded within academia by federal funding are much more speculative, you know, and uh, 
like the search for specific types of dark matter. And um, my point is I didn't take money out of those channels because uh, it's all based on donations. So it's just something that everyone should welcome. I can't disagree with that, Avi. You've you've said much of what I think, and I'm sure many of the listeners and viewers as well. One of the themes I really enjoyed in the book is the reimagining of first contact. Um, one of the, the points of discussion is around how that may come about, and you write that likely. Uh, the reality of first contact could be more benign than perhaps we see in the Hollywood movies where Independence Day, famously, the satellites pick up the huge craft coming into the atmosphere and everyone's panicking. You say more likely would be we come across an inanimate or sentient object more than a craft being piloted. But I have to ask, because you brought it up as well, David Grush uh, commented recently at those hearings that he has spoken to individuals about uh, and has seen documentation that states we have crashed craft and biologics, essentially alien bodies. And I wonder, as a man of science, and you're very much traversing this whole topic in a very, you know, a respectful way, what does that make you start to think when you're when you're looking for breadcrumbs and this guy says he can tell you where they're making the loaf? Well, that would be really surprising to me, although, you know, we found the uh, worms uh, in the permafrost in uh, uh, Siberia that um, uh, were frozen into the ice. And when they were um, revived, they uh, came to life after 46,000 years. And so uh, perhaps there are ways that we don't know yet of uh, keeping biological uh, bodies uh, frozen and uh, you know and and survive uh, and and uh, living uh, across interstellar travel, which takes millions to billions of years. You know that's a very long time. I always thought that uh, that would uh, require uh, going to artificial intelligence uh, astronauts, AI astronauts that are uh, just technological gadgets with no biology involved. That's that was my thinking. But of course, you know, whatever the evidence shows, I will uh, learn from. However, you know, the, the key question right now is whether David Grush was telling the truth. And uh, I mean, obviously, he was reporting what he heard, but whether the story that he heard is fabricated or not. And the only way to find out is to get to the source. And that's what the Congress people are doing. He uh, promised to give them the contact details of those 40 individuals that were involved in these programs. And we hopefully within the coming months we'll learn more if these programs are real, uh, and and of course once um, you know if there is anything behind those stories, then I would be thrilled to study uh, the materials that the government may possess, and because I think it's um, supposed to be the work of scientists, not uh, any corporation, because uh, this is knowledge that should be shared with all humans. If we're talking about a craft that came from uh, thousands of light years away, uh, it uh, we, it didn't have us in mind when it started the journey because uh, you know it with chemical propulsion it probably took it um, millions to billions of years, uh, and we were not around uh, when it started the journey. So uh, anything to do with national borders um, is of no interest to visitors from far away. And um, it should be knowledge, just like the knowledge about the universe. You know, we, we don't hide what happened 
after the Big Bang from uh, uh, based on nationality. We just want everyone to know. And um, that's the way science is done. And I very much hope that uh, if there is anything behind the, the claims of Grash, that this uh, whatever physical evidence there is will be shared with scientists like myself so we can get to the bottom of it. The one advantage is you get it to the attention of the brightest minds in the world uh, and then you you can make progress much faster. Let's say they keep that hidden for now and those conversations go on for a long time, which is probably, unfortunately, more likely. Let's go with we find that inanimate or sentient object that, that you talk about. As much as it's benign, it's still going to be something incredible. It's still going to be the greatest discovery in the history of mankind. I wonder, what do you think are some of the biggest considerations we need to make in that sort of first contact scenario? Yeah, so first, I think the most important thing is just like finding a stranger in your backyard. You want to understand the purpose of the visit, okay? Because your response will depend on two things, the purpose of the visit and the nature of the visitor. And uh, it, it makes no sense, in my opinion, to have a committee that decides about a set of rules because our imagination is limited by what we have here on Earth. And it could be something completely different out of this world. And as a result, any rulemaking, uh, you know, procedural um, uh, decision made by, um, by a committee ahead of time will not be relevant. So the first thing to figure out is what is, uh, what is the visitor seeking? And um, what is the nature of the visitor? You know, like, uh, what capabilities does it have? And then we have to think about how to interact with it, just the way you interact with a stranger in your backyard. What do you think, as a species, the most likely mistakes would be that we would make? And I wonder, you, you mentioned military response being one of them, or the, the attempt to keep this secret. Is that the biggest mistakes we are likely to make? Yeah, because um, just imagine that you are a member of uh, an isolated family living in a house and then you go out to your backyard and suddenly you realize here is a tennis ball that was thrown by a neighbor. So we have neighbors. Now, the question is then, would you go back and tell your family members about the finding? And uh, of course, you can hide the information, but uh, by doing that, you are... Uh, not allowing your family member to recognize the reality that they live in because they might want to close off the windows and maintain their privacy uh, or they might want to go out and chat with the neighbor to learn from it uh, or, you know, one way or another, the neighbor will come knocking on your door or affect your, the life of your family. So it's a much better approach to be transparent and share the information with your family members so that you know which reality you live in. That if you have neighbors, let's know about it. And um, hiding that from the public, I think, makes very little sense because it's not a matter of national security in the context of the U.S. government, for example. And um, perhaps what happened, you know, the only realistic situation that I can imagine is that uh, something was found and was given to corporations. But the corporations obviously are getting paid for looking into the materials and their relationship to the Department of Defense would be that of a psychiatrist and a patient in a sense that the psychiatrist will never solve the problems of the patient. 
because once the problems are solved, there will not be any more payments. So uh, from the point of view of the corporations, they would like the flow of cash to continue and they will maintain that as long as they don't figure out what's the nature of, of these materials. And on the, on the other hand, if we were to bring it to the attention of scientists, you know, there is no commercial interest. It's the work of scientists is not for profit. And uh, this way we can make progress much faster. People would worry, Avi, that, uh, that yourself and the Galileo project, maybe you find that tennis ball from the neighbours one day and that the, the big bad neighbours across the road, i.e. the US government or some shadow organisation, come over and take that tennis ball away before you can tell everyone about it. Have you got mechanisms in place that can stop that happening? Yeah, it's the same mechanisms that uh, you know science uh, uses all the time where... The information is always open. Everyone knows the set of rules. So far, nobody came to me and said, please don't do this or that. And, um, you know, astronomers are looking at the sky all the time. It's just that they're not focusing on things overhead that are passing at a large uh, angular speed. And they're focusing on very distant uh, sources. So um, as long as we are not um, placing our observatory close to a sensitive strategic site, I don't see a conflict with government. Uh, and we are, uh, as I said, that we are focused on things that are not uh, made by humans or, or by nature here on Earth. Early in the book, to bring it back full circle, you talk about the day after an official disclosure, you know, day two, and what the world would look like. And you say it would largely look similar to day minus one, so the day before we found out. And I, I've talked about that very idea before. You mentioned the media may take notice, some of the general public would, but everyone else goes back to work. They commute to their office. The officials are still working towards re-election. Is that where you hope on those days an organization like the Galileo Project would really come into its own as a thought leader and a, a point of reference? Yeah, because uh, if the evidence is conclusive, uh, in other words, it was collected by instruments and anyone looking at the data from the instruments will have to conclude the same thing. If it's not anecdotal, it's not uh, based on eyewitness testimonies, but, but based on instruments, then eventually it will catch up. Um, and, uh, you know, my hope is that obviously once, uh, I mean, I can see what happens with the expedition. Okay. So just the fact that we retrieved materials from the Pacific Ocean made, he uh, made he headlines everywhere. I, I had uh, eight to 10 interviews per day over a period of two months after coming back from the Pacific Ocean. So, um, I would say it's definitely possible that if you do your job right as a scientist, that eventually uh, it will catch up and people will re realize that we live in a different reality than we thought. One question I want to ask that I've not got into in the body of the interview, just before we wrap up, Avi, is that the NASA study, Any Day Now, is due to release its findings. I spoke to Dr. Nadia Drake, who's a part of the study. Her uh, father was obviously Francis Drake, famously of the Drake Equation. Um, what are your thoughts on an independent study like that being set up by NASA? Many folks already feel quite negative about what's going to come out because they feel it's largely going to be dismissive or not too progressive in terms of the UAP conversation. Yeah, so on June 4th, uh, 2021, uh, Bill Nelson uh, spoke on CNN and said that the scientists should get engaged in the study of UAP because 
he as a senator witnessed uh, some of the classified uh, information and the hair in the back of his neck stood up. So he was really alarmed. Uh, and uh, at that time, I immediately the following day contacted NASA and they asked me to write a white paper, which I did saying that uh, a serious uh, study into this matter should take place. And I suggested the establishment of a committee and so forth. And they didn't get back to me after that. And then a, a, a month and a half later, I established the Galileo project because I didn't hear back from them. And it was uh, funded by private, private donations. And then a year later, uh, someone tells me, did you see the NASA announcement? And I said, no. And I checked it. Turns out NASA established a committee. So I wrote back to NASA and said, well, it looks like my white paper triggered this committee. Why didn't you invite me to, to lead it? Because I suggested it. And um, they said, well, you have a conflict of interest because you are engaged in the Galileo project. So you are promoting the cause and we can't involve you in a committee that is supposed to advise NASA. Uh, about whether to uh, fund such work. So it, it's like an oxymoron, because if you say that a person who cares about the climate should not be engaged in any committee that discusses climate change, you know, that is really a contradiction. But in this case, that's what they did. So they established this committee. I, was, I testified twice about the Galileo project in front of it, and it's about to release the report uh, any day now. And uh, the point is that my guess is that they would say that better data needs to be collected by instruments that we have full control over and that are well calibrated, which is exactly the narrative of the Galileo project. So for two years, the Galileo project has been pursuing these narratives. It took them two years, if that's the case, to establish a committee that would say the same thing. So the only thing I would argue is Imita as Oscar Wilde said, the imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, if they do provide funding, then, of course, the Galileo Project will apply for that, them. Uh, but the, in terms of the principles, I cannot imagine them saying anything different than what we are already doing. Very fair. And I wonder when the reader picks up their copy of Interstellar or uh, if it's going to be on audiobook, they listen to it, they read it, they finish it. What do you hope that they take away with them? So um, the book uh, Interstellar is coming out on the 29th of uh, August, 2023, and uh, it will be available everywhere. Uh, uh, it was already selected as uh, the most uh, uh, desired book, uh, anticipated book on uh, Barnes and Noble. Uh, and then, um, uh, you know, I very much hope that anyone uh, checking it will enjoy it uh, and um, uh, the conversation will continue. And uh, around the same time, uh, there will be also um, a press release about uh, the results from uh, the expedition. So um, uh, I hope that uh, this will uh, increase the visibility of, of the subject, which is very important. Uh, so I hope that the next year will be full of uh, discoveries and uh, we will get this subject to become one of the most uh, exciting frontiers in science. 
Well, I very much enjoyed the book. People can pre-order it now on all the usual sites. You know where to get those links. will be in the description as well, as will the links to Avi's blog, where you can keep up to date with the, the work he's been doing in the Pacific Ocean with the interstellar object. And of course, I'm sure the results will be published any day now, like you say as well, Avi. Thank you so much for joining me, Avi. It's always a pleasure to speak to you. And thank you very much for the work you've done. Same here, Andy. And I hope next time we speak, we'll have some exciting results to talk about. That is all for this episode. Thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. Apple and Spotify do make a huge difference to the algorithm. If you're checking the show out on YouTube, please don't forget to like and leave a comment on here as well. Any sharing you do is very much appreciated on any social media platform. And finally, you can listen to shows ad-free and sponsor-free in their glorious full versions by subscribing for less than the price of a coffee on Apple, Spotify, just search That UFO Podcast Premium YouTube, you can sign up and be a member or you can do that through patreon.com. Thank you very much for listening folks It wasn't a tic tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little baroque and quite steampunk like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Folk The little fucker hovered right outside of my window and when I shoved out the screen he made it an issue I don't think he expected me to see his ass but I'd had some champagne and smoked a